It's good to be back with you. Uh, I've been praying for you, and I'm excited for what God has in store for you as uh, Pastor Tony joins with you uh, at the end of the month. Most of you know, I think, that I'm a lawyer, and my sermon today is definitely lawyer-themed. I think it's fair to say that courtroom drama is an American pastime. It seems like there's always a high-profile case that we're watching. Years ago, it was O.J., and uh, here lately, it was Bill Cosby's rape trial. And we love our courtroom TV, don't we? Uh, My favorite is probably Law and Order. Would you believe that Law and Order is tied with Gunsmoke as the longest-running primetime TV series? And it spun off TV shows, movies, even a video game. It's almost impossible to pick up your newspaper or to scroll through your newsfeed without seeing something about a court proceeding. It's everyday news in any town, USA. And I think God understands the drama and the power of the courtroom. And he laid a message on the heart of his prophet Micah. His people were falling into sin. The prophets, the leaders, everybody. And he reached out. He pleaded. He begged his people. But they wouldn't listen. He loved them. And he kept crying out. But their hearts were hard and they wouldn't respond. And finally, God decided that he would bring charges. He would bring Israel into a divine courtroom. And he would lay out his case for the world to see. Israel would have to stand trial and answer for its sin and its lack of repentance. You've already heard the passage and you may be thinking, okay... This is a nice bit of Old Testament history, but what does this have to do with me? And here's what I want you to see. Every verse of this passage has to do with you. God is speaking to you and to me and to every believer, and he's putting our faith in the spotlight. He's putting our faith on trial. We may name the name of Jesus, but are we living like it? Do our lives put Jesus on display for a watching world? That's the question God wants us to answer. And with that in mind, I want us to look together at mm -hmm, the summons. The summons. And I'm reading today out of the New International Version. I think it's a little easier to understand. And so we begin in Micah chapter 6, 
verses 1 and 2. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. You may not be familiar with Micah, but he was a prophet almost 700 years before the life and ministry of Jesus. He was actually a contemporary of Isaiah. And what we know is that in Isaiah's day, the people of God were falling into sin. It was a time of materialism. Sound familiar? People were stealing things, belonging to their neighbors and their loved ones, and they were doing it by fraud and deceit. The leaders were corrupt. The prophets were leading the people astray. And the marketplace was filled with lying and cheating and violence. And a holy God couldn't just stand by. He reached out again and again through his prophets, pointing out their sins, wooing them, pleading with them to repent. But they refused. And so finally, God gives Micah a message that shows exactly how serious Israel's sin is. He brings them to court. He tells Micah to stand up and to plead his case. Micah, the prophet, is the prosecuting attorney. And God says, Micah, I want the whole world to hear this. I want you to plead my case before the hills and the mountains. I want you to summon the very foundations of the earth. My people have sinned. My people have broken faith. And I'm bringing charges against them. And it's a reminder to us that God is holy and righteous. And he will judge our lives. Even believers, listen, these Israelites, they weren't foreigners. They weren't unbelievers. These were the people of God. And God still brought their lives under his scrutiny and his judgment. The Bible makes it clear that every believer will give an account to God. Will be judged for our works and our ministries. It's called the believer's judgment or the judgment seat of Christ. And I want to lay a foundation so we all have a good understanding of what this is and what it means. When you were saved, you received forgiveness for your sins, past, present, and future. Jesus bore your sins on the cross and he took your punishment. And because Jesus paid your sin debt, you've got a new home. You've got a new citizenship 
you belong to God. And as long as you're living on planet Earth, you've got kingdom work to do. You and I. Work that has eternal value and eternal worth to it. And that's something that we should desire deep within us. There's a scripture, uh, Paul writing to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 13. Here's what he says. For it is God who works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. As the people of God, we should have a desire to obey God's word. We should have a desire to carry out his plans and fulfill his good purpose in our lives. Think of it like this. You and I as believers are the image bearers of God. And our lives should reflect God's character. People should see the holiness of God in us. People should see God's love and compassion in us. And they should see our faithfulness and obedience as we do the work that God has given us to do. And when we stand before God, He'll judge us. I want us to look at a A couple of verses together. Technology and I don't go together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. Paul writing again. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body. Whether good or we're bad. And then again, Paul writing to the Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw... Their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping Through the flames. What he's saying is that everything we've done for the sake of the kingdom will be judged. God's given you a spiritual gift. Every believer has a spiritual gift. Have you used it? Be honest. Have you put your gift to work to help spread the gospel? Or have you kept it? Hidden, if you kept it buried. What have you done with the opportunities God has given you to share your faith, to pray for those around you, to give help and support? 
Has God given you a ministry? Maybe it's teaching. Maybe it's working with kids. Maybe it's singing in the choir. Whatever it is, have you been faithful? Have you done the work he's given you to do lovingly and joyfully and wholeheartedly? Have people seen Jesus in the way you live? The things you say, the things you do, or is Jesus somewhere in the background of your life? All of those things will be tested and judged. And the picture Paul gives us is the picture of fire. The fire will show every work for what it is. If it's gold, silver, or gemstones, it will survive the fire. And you'll receive an award. But if it's wood, hay, or straw, you and I both know what's going to happen. It's going to burn up. In the heat of the fire. I remember years ago hearing Charles Stanley preach from this passage. And what he said was profound. He said the saddest thing he could imagine was standing before Jesus. Your works have gone through the fire. And the only thing you have to show for it is a pile of ash. Nothing of eternal value. Nothing that brought glory to the king and the kingdom. Just a pile of ash and the smell of smoke. How we live our lives as Christians matters. And we should live in a way that honors and glorifies God and builds His kingdom. You and I will give an account to our King. We will stand before His judgment seat. Are we ready? Israel was summoned into God's courtroom. And as the complaining party, God presents his case first. And that's what we see in verses 3, 4, and 5 out of our passage in Micah. That brings us to God's case. And as we move into God's case, the first thing that we see is his theme. Every lawyer who's trying a case has a theme. What's the point of this case from God's perspective? How can you sum up God's case in a sentence or two? Micah chapter 6 verse 3. Here's what the verse says. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. So God asks a question and I'll try to paraphrase it. 
What have I done to make you rebel against me? What weight have I put on your shoulders that's so heavy, that's so much of a burden that you refuse to be faithful to me? And then he begins to tell his story. And it's a love story. Can you imagine? It's a love story. All the things he did to make Israel his own people. To bring them out of slavery and desperation and into a land of promise. And he begins in verse 4. Just an outline for you. Here's what he says in verse 4. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. God says, I redeemed you. I rescued you. And I brought you up out of Egypt. You were slaves. You were in bondage to the Egyptians. They took away your freedom. They forced you to do hard labor. They beat you. They abused you. And there was nothing you could do to save yourselves. So you cried out. You cried out to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God says, I heard you. I heard you and my heart was moved with compassion. I reached out. With signs and wonders and plagues that dumbfounded the Egyptians and all of their so-called gods. I proved myself with a mighty hand. And I brought you out. Two million strong. I brought you out. And do you remember Israel? Do you remember how I parted the Red Sea? So you could cross. And, and do you remember how I brought the waters back and I destroyed Pharaoh's army. And I did it all because I loved you. How have I burdened you, Israel? How have I burdened you by saving you from slavery and death? You see, God is the Savior. He's a God who rescues and what he did for Israel through the Exodus, he did for all mankind through the cross. The Bible says that all of us are slaves. We're slaves to sin. Every man, woman, and child is born with a bent to sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin separates us from God. It it binds us. The Bible says it's a trap. It's a snare. And there's nothing we can do to escape its grasp. And in the end, sin brings death. But God saw us. And he saw our helplessness. And he was moved with compassion. And he sent his own son, Jesus, to suffer and die on a cross to take the punishment that should have been yours and mine. Jesus paid the price 
for our sin. And now he reaches out, he cries out, and he pleads with us to be rescued from the slavery of sin. I want to talk directly to those in the room who are unsaved, those who don't know Jesus. You may be thinking to yourself, I'm a pretty good person. I don't drink. I don't carouse. I even come to church from time to time. I sing the songs. I pray. I drop money in the offering plate as it comes by. I think when I die... The good things are going to outweigh the bad things on the cosmic scales of justice. Can I tell you something? There are no cosmic scales of justice. The reality is we all stand before God with exactly the same problem. We're sinners. And what we need is a rescue. Here's what Jesus said. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth is, there's only one rescue, and that's Jesus. Romans 10.9 says, Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Turn from your sin. Turn your heart and your mind and your life to God. Receive this saving work for yourself. And God will rescue you from sin and death and hell. I pray that you'll make that a reality in your own life today. Now I want to talk to the believers in the room. God would say to you, I rescued you. I delivered you from the grasp of sin. Why in the world would you ever look back? God asks you the same question he asked Israel. How have I burdened you? Look at the bloodstains on the cross and ask yourself, after all he's done, how can I possibly live for myself? And my own selfish desires. How can I possibly break faith with the one who saved my life? How have I burdened you? Well, what's the next part of God's love story? Also in chapter 6 verse 4. God says... I sent Moses to lead you. Also Aaron and Miriam. God says, I sent you leaders. I sent Moses to teach you my word and my will and my ways. And I sent Aaron and Miriam to lead you into worship. God met with Moses on Mount Horeb. And he would come off the mountaintop and his face would be glowing from having spent time in the presence of God. And God gave Moses his laws, how the people should worship, how they should 
treat each other. He gave them instructions for building the tabernacle, for offering their sacrifices. He gave them rules for living together as a community. And then Moses gathered the people together at the foot of Mount Horeb and they exchanged vows. They entered into a covenant with God. The people promised to obey God and to live as his people. And God promised to love them and to care for them and to accomplish his work of salvation through them. Moses was a leader and a lawgiver. And it was through Moses that the people heard God's voice and received God's word. Aaron was the high priest. And it was through Aaron and his sons that the people learned how to worship. How to live right. How to live a a right life before God. He offered prayers and sacrifices. He took charge of the tabernacle. He led their uh, times of worship as a community. And then there's Miriam. What a fascinating character she is. I like to think of Miriam as Israel's first song leader. You remember after uh, the Israelites crossed uh, the Red Sea and the uh, army of Pharaoh was destroyed, the Bible says that Miriam grabbed a tambourine and she began singing a praise song to God uh, with all the women following and singing and dancing and giving thanks to God. And so you, you have Moses and Aaron and Miriam, all of them were a gift from God. It was through their leadership that the Israelites became the people of God. And in the courtroom, God points back to these three leaders and he asks the same question. How have I burdened you? You were homeless. You were leaderless. You had no idea what it meant to be my people. But through Moses and Aaron and Miriam, you came to know me. And I built you up for the glory of my name. Tell me, why won't you keep faith? I think God would challenge us with the same question. Do you realize that you and I possess the word of God? Not somebody's thoughts or somebody's ideas. This is a God-breathed word. It's faithful. It's true. It has authority in your life. God has chosen to reveal himself through his word. Who he is. What he's like. How we can know him and live for him. And it's in your hands. 66 books, but one author. God's word for God's people. And God speaks through the pages of this book. It teaches us. It convicts us. It refreshes us. It draws us into God's presence. But folks, do we read it? God has something to say. God is speaking, but if we're honest, many of us won't even crack the cover 
challenging us. He's confronting us with our, our spiritual laziness and our lack of passion. And he says, how have I made this too hard for you? I've given you my word. Read it. Study it. Commit it to memory. Make it a part of you. And he's given us leaders too. Pastors. Deacons. Teachers. Faithful men and women who build us up week after week. They teach us. They mentor us. They give us opportunities to be serving. Your leaders are a gift from God. Ephesians 4 says that God gives leaders to the church to prepare his people for service and to see them grow into maturity. Thank God for your leaders. Pray for them. You have a new pastor coming. You should be on your knees praying for this new pastor, praying for God to give him wisdom and vision and encouragement. I hope you don't miss the point of all of this. God cares for you. God loves you. And he's hand-picked leaders for you. Listen to them. The writer of Hebrews says, Consider their way and imitate their faith. God's given us his word. He's given us leaders to teach us and care for us. How? How could we possibly turn our backs on that kind of love? So we've looked at the Exodus. We've looked at the leaders that God appointed over Israel. And then God points us back to the story of Balaam. Micah chapter 6 verse 5. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Now, if you know who Balaam is, I'm willing to bet the only part of the story you remember is the talking donkey. But that's not really the point of the story. Israel was wandering in the desert. And eventually, they crossed into the territory belonging to the Moabites. Now, the king of the Moabites was afraid. Two million Israelites are suddenly showing up on his doorstep. And it sounds like it could be a threat. So he reaches out to Balaam. Now the best way I can describe Balaam is to say that he is a prophet for hire. He's a hired gun. And so the king of Moab enters into a contract with Balaam to pronounce a curse over Israel. Four times Balaam stood up to speak. And four times God put his words into Balaam's mouth. Words of divine blessing. Balaam, moved by the Holy Spirit of God, says that Israel is as strong as an ox. Israel 
is as hungry as a lion. God will give them victory over their enemies. He promises safety. He promises abundance. He promises that Israel's kingdom will be exalted and remembered. And then he looks into the future. And he peers over the horizon. And he sees a savior. Out of Israel would come a Messiah. Who would bring the judgment and the kingdom of God. God says, I've already written your story, Israel. I've given you a hope and I've given you a future. All of your tomorrows are safely in my hands. I took a man who was ready to curse you for money. And I used him as my instrument. I spoke my words. I spoke my message. Instead of cursing, I spoke blessing. Tell me, Israel, how have I burdened you? After all I've said, all I've done, why would you stray from me? And if you're a Christian today, I hope you understand that God has given you a hope and a future. God is working in your life. He's working in you and through you to accomplish his purposes. And that's exciting. Your life isn't blown here and there by the wind. You aren't a victim of chance. You are a child of God. And God is busy in your life. He's working in you. He's developing your character. He wants you to reflect the love and the goodness and the compassion that he sees in Jesus. And he's working through you. Ephesians chapter 2 says that you were created for good works that God himself prepared in advance for you to do. You and I are a part of God's kingdom work. And I can tell you this. He's given you a future too. When your life on planet earth comes to an end, guess what? It's not the end. There's an eternal home that's waiting for us. We've been studying heaven in my discipleship class. And it's been exciting. It's been eye-opening. There will be a new earth. God will unwind the effects of sin And the curse. And there will be no more death. No more decay. No more brokenness. No more tears of sorrow and loss. We'll have reunion with friends and loved ones who've gone before us. And listen, listen. God will dwell with us. We will have fellowship. Real fellowship with our Lord. Face to face and our lives will have just begun I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis and I, I love the uh, Chronicles of Narnia and if you read through those books all the way to the end the last words of the last book C.S. Lewis gives us a taste of what heaven will be like 
Here's what he says. We can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. You, believer, have a hope and you have a future. And in light of all of those things, a life of service in the here and now and a future life of glory, God asks, how have I burdened you? Can you still walk away and cling to your sin knowing all that I've done and all that I've promised for you? And then the last thing God points to as he closes out his case is Israel's journey. Whoops. His journey from Shittim to Gilgal. Here's what he says in chapter 6, verse 5. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that, it, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, you'll be interested to know that the distance from Shittim to Gilgal is roughly 20 miles. So, you have to ask yourself, why is this important? Why is a 20-mile journey something that's on God's mind? And here's what you need to know. Shittim is the last place that Israel camped on the far side of the Jordan River. And Gilgal is the first place Israel camped after they crossed the river. He's reminding them that when the time was right, he led them across the Jordan River and into the promised land. He made a promise and he kept it. For 40 years, they wandered, going from place to place. But as they made the journey from Shittim to Gilgal, his promise became a reality. And he says, look, I made a promise I journeyed with you as you crossed into the Holy Land. I am a promise keeper. I brought you out of slavery and into a land that I prepared for you. A land that was rich and beautiful. A land where you could live and thrive and enjoy all of my blessings. Tell me, tell me Israel, how have I burdened you? Why would you deny me? And defy my word. And I can assure you. That God hasn't changed. The promise keeping God. Of the Old Testament. Is the promise keeping God. Of the New Testament. That's why we can sing songs like. Standing on the promise. And great is thy faithfulness. God's word is true. And his promises are yes. And amen. 
So when we read in Romans 8 that in all things God is working for our good, we can stand on it and we can praise God for it. And when we read in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, I am with you always, that's a promise he'll keep. And we should live like it. Whatever we may be facing, whatever we may be going through, God is with us. Jesus keeps his promise. And when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And oh, by the way, if I'm going away, I'm coming back. I'm coming back for you so that where I am, you may be with me forever. And you can shout amen and hallelujah because he'll keep his promise. See, as the people of God, we are heirs of all of his promises. And we have the assurance, we have the certainty that every one of his promises will come to pass. And he has a question for us. You know that I'm a promise keeper. You know all the good things I have in store for you. How have I burdened you? Why would you push me away and cling to your sin and your stubbornness instead of clinging to me? And just like that, just like that, God closes his case. He doesn't make one accusation. He doesn't point out one sin. He leaves that to the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what I want us to do. In the quiet of your heart, I want to invite you to listen for God's still small voice. Is he pointing out a sin in your life? Is he showing you a shortcoming or a failing? Something you know doesn't belong in the life of of a believer. This is your time. This is your moment. Bring it to God. Confess it and begin walking again with a heart that's pure and devoted. A heart that's free from any sin or regret. Be what God created you to be. Do what God created you to do. And bring glory to the one who wrote your love story. If God stirs your heart today, don't hesitate to respond.